KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. Philadelphia is no stranger to health emergencies. Obviously, we're dealing with COVID-19 now. You had Spanish flu back in 1918. Back in the 18th and 19th centuries, yellow fever, always a threat. And in 1793, the city was just devastated by a yellow fever outbreak. And in the center of that storm in 1793 was Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a founding father that people should definitely know more about. So to take a deep dive, into the life of Dr. Benjamin Rush and learn specifically about his role in that yellow fever outbreak in 1793, we reached out to Stephen Freed. He is the author of an outstanding book about Benjamin Rush. It's called Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Benjamin Rush, the visionary doctor who became a founding father. Really interesting stuff. Give a listen. So let's just kind of start, for people that aren't familiar, give us a a quick idea of who Dr. Benjamin Rush was. Sure. Dr. Benjamin Rush is sort of the uh, the founder who people haven't found yet. He uh, clearly belongs in the pantheon of the top founders, but part of the reason he didn't end up being one was because he was uh, not only a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a close friend of Adams, Jefferson had close relationships, not always easy with uh, Washington and Hamilton. But he also was a keeper of a lot of their secrets. A lot of the letters that they wrote that were most revealing about what they felt um, about politics, about religion, about their own health, uh, were in the Rush's possession when Benjamin Rush died. The Rush family was really scared to let his legacy come out the way that maybe it should have. So his letters were suppressed. He had written an autobiography, um, which was also suppressed because the family was afraid it was very... um, it was open about what he thought about Washington, which at that time was sacrilege. We now take for granted that you can talk about the pluses and minuses of the founding fathers. Back then, to say anything negative about George Washington was not good. And Rush had been critical of Washington. And so um, we don't know a lot about Rush because his, his story was kept quiet for a really long time. But basically, why he's important is very clear. Medically, uh, he was the first important doctor in the new nation. He taught the first 3,000 physicians who became doctors in America, and he brought a voice to the founding fathers, to the declaration signers, to the people who wrote the Constitution of a physician where most of them were lawyers and business people, who I think had certain ideas that we can see aren't exactly playing out the way they had hoped, that if you pass a law, it just makes problems go away. Whereas I think a doctor has a real different appreciation for what changes in the world, what doesn't change, and what you have to deal with. And so Russia's view of all the events of the revolution is really different than everybody else's. Um, really fascinating, really comforting. I have to say, honestly, as a Philadelphian who lives six blocks from Independence Hall, I didn't know any of this, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that now, uh, and, and started this project in part because I thought it would be interesting for me to finally learn about what happened down the street from my house. And Benjamin Rush turned out to be the perfect way to learn that because the other great thing about Rush is that he was basically younger than the other founders and he watched their entire story unfold. He wrote about it in many different ways. He, I like to think of it, he had like a camera running on the entire revolution, the constitutional period, the federal period, and it's like no one ever developed the film. So he offers you a way of seeing 
what happened before the revolution. He was not only a signer, but he was on the battlefields of the Revolutionary War. He was not at the Constitutional Convention, but was very much part of it and is the reason that Pennsylvania ratified the Constitution. He led the ratification process in Pennsylvania. It's hard for us to believe today, but Pennsylvania was the most important state in these ratifications, just as it was for the signing of the Declaration. Pennsylvania was the last state to sign uh, because Philadelphia had the most to lose <laughs> if there was a revolution, because Philadelphia was the, was the biggest and most powerful city in America. So Rush just gives us an incredible way of viewing all the founders, the founding fathers, their wives, because Rush had Rush and Adams had kind of like the love relationships in their marriages. So you actually see them and their wives and their kids in, in a very modern way. And, uh, you know, he lived through everything. He died in 1813, uh, just as the War of 1812 was coming out. His son was working in the administration at that point as the spokesperson for the war. So he's a great character who gives you a fascinating view of America at, at, at every turn. And he also was on the right side of all the social justice issues. So he was, very, he was the very woke uh, founding father. He was on the right side of abolition. He was, you know, hugely important in the anti-slavery movement and also in the movement to make sure that free blacks were not discriminated against. His main contribution in medicine is that he was the, really the first person to talk about mental illness and addiction as diseases that needed to be treated by doctors, an idea that we still sometimes have a hard time getting people to understand today. And Rush is really the first person to write about that in a medical way. And separation of church and state was something he was quite obsessed with. And uh, so the place of religion in the new America and the role of what an American citizen was supposed to do. He was as interested in the revolution as he was in what it meant to not have a king and not have a state church. So when we talk about what citizenship is supposed to be, what being an American is supposed to be, Rush wrote really eloquently and fascinatingly about this in ways that still feel incredibly modern to us because he, I think, correctly predicted these would always be the challenges of America. So these cyclical challenges of America that we keep thinking go away and then they come back, Rush never thought they would go away. He always thought they would be the challenges of America. You know, one time he summed up the challenge of America as balancing science, religion, liberty, and good government, uh, which are things that really, you know, have little trouble, you know, mutually existing. He's just, you know, the more you learn about him, the more you learn about America and the founding of the country. And it's interesting because we're going through a period where I think a lot of people are reevaluating a lot of the founding fathers. You know, people that talked about freedom for all, owned slaves. Mm -hmm. Could we look at somebody like Dr. Benjamin Rush and it would be reevaluated where we appreciate how far ahead of his time was? And maybe it is time and starting with your book, that he's a guy that we look at and go, this maybe is more the direction we should be looking in? Well, I'm somewhat biased on that question, as you can imagine. You know, I'm still wondering why Lynn manuel decided to pick Hamilton. You know, not a great guy, um, instead of Rush, who also liked music more. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. The one thing that I will keep in mind is that no, none of the founders were perfect. And a lot of the individual factoids about the founders have become sort of the tofu of politics. So people tend to pick one thing about each founder and grasp onto that as why they are good or why they are bad. 
Every one of them had things that they did that don't look great in the light of day. Rush is ironic because, you know, there were, you know, Franklin was a, one of the founders of the Abolition Society. Franklin had many slaves during his entire life. Benjamin Rush had one slave who he purchased for some reason, we don't know why, and a previously enslaved person in the late 1780s and freed in the, in the late 1770s and freed in the late 1780s. It's not even clear that anybody knew at the time that he had this enslaved person because Rush was known, one, as an abolitionist, and two, he had a staff in his house of paid employees. So we don't really understand why he had this enslaved person. But for some people, that's enough to sort of cross everything else that he did off, which is unfortunate because while I, I could make the argument that you know George Washington and a number of the other people never did what much to try to address the issues of race uh, during their time, Benjamin Rush was quite obsessed with it. I mean, he wrote the first pamphlet against uh, slavery in 1773, you know, really a cornerstone of abolition movement in general, and wrote it from the perspective of both somebody interested in politics and a physician. So he not only wrote that slavery was wrong and unfair, and all the ideas that people had that African Americans were somehow right for slavery, which he found incredibly offensive, he brought those same arguments as saying, you know, Prejudice against free blacks is wrong, too. And that was, in Philadelphia, an equally important issue as slavery itself. So he wrote about that very actively. He lost almost half of his business for writing this pamphlet in 1773. It is, we believe, part of the reason why he didn't write Common Sense. Most people don't know that Common Sense was edited by Benjamin Rush. It started with a pamphlet that he wrote that he decided not to finish and instead convinced Thomas Paine to write and he edited the pamphlet as Payne was writing it. They were friends. He uh, gave it its name, and he got it published. So he was very actively involved in that. And then the movement for racial equality got going in America again around the time the Constitution was being written. That's when the Abolition Society really became active. Um, that's when Rush freed his one slave. And that's when the, also the Free Black Society was put into place because, again, the problems of getting free blacks money to start businesses, legal help in case people tried to re-enslave them. These were very, very active issues. And these were things that Rush worked on all the time. He also helped the African-American clergy build the first free black church in America because there was prejudice in the congregations in Philadelphia against their African-American clergy members and parishioners. And Richard Allen and Absalom Jones decided that they would start their own churches just for African-Americans. Of course, Bishop White was quite against this. He didn't like it that people were suggesting that he was racist and they needed to start their own churches. And Rush supported them. Rush drew up the plan for the first free black church. He helped raise the money for it. And uh, it ended up being two churches. The one we know best is Mother Bethel uh, at the corner of Sixth and Lombard, which is still there, uh, but also the Church of St. George, which was right down the street. So Rush was extremely active in all aspects of uh, the earliest uh, movements of black and white people in America, especially in Philadelphia, trying to fight for racial justice. And he was also the president of the National Organization of Abolition Societies in the 1790s, which used to meet in Philadelphia every other year to try to change laws. So it's I think people don't know a lot of this about him. He's an unknown guy, you know, and most people know like one thing. So they know one good thing or one bad thing. And, you know, my goal is that they learn a lot of different things because 
It's a good way of understanding all these issues within the country. They're not so simple. As a physician, he was right in the middle as we go through our a pandemic. He was right in the middle of a health emergency in Philadelphia. Yellow fever, yes. 1793. Now, yellow fever was not new in 1793. It was something that, you know, you'd have. But it was terrible in 1793. This really ripped through. And he was front and center in that, correct? He was by that time, in the early 1790s, by that time, first of all, the, you know, people forget that the U.S. Capitol was in Philadelphia from 1790 to 1800. Philadelphia, which had been the center of America up until this point, really was the center of America. And Rush was the leading doctor in the country. He was running what had become the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He was, I guess, a combination of like your Fauci and your Surgeon General and your you know, well-known doctor, people would send him letters to diagnose them by mail. He was just, you know, incredibly powerful as a doc. At the same time, there were many things they didn't know about medicine, you know, that no one knew. They didn't know about infection. There's many things they didn't know. So when he was very young, there were no medical schools in Philadelphia. So he was an apprentice. And then he went to medical school in Edinburgh, uh, which was the leading medical school in the country. And then he came back and was part of the staff of the first medical school in the country, at Benjamin Franklin's College of Philadelphia, which morphed into Penn. So in 1762, he was involved as a young trainee doc with the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. It was relatively small, but he knew what it was. Yellow fever was something that would periodically show up in these port towns. It was not unknown. However, the 1793 epidemic was so much bigger than any yellow fever epidemic in history. And Again, it was the U.S. Capitol. Okay, so you're talking August of 1793, the president's coming back, the Congress is coming back, biggest city in America, most important financial city in America. 10% of the population dies in three months. Okay, it's just the amount of death, the amount of illness, and the utter inability to do anything about it because they didn't even know how the, how the disease was spread. It was another hundred years before anybody figured out that mosquitoes did it. So any reading of this that suggests that someone knew what was going on is a misreading. I mean, these docs all fought about the right way to treat. They had different ideas. Rush was more aggressive than some other docs. None of them knew what they were doing. Nothing they did helped one person. Okay, the people who lived through the yellow fever, you lived through it. Those who didn't, didn't. And what we always have to be careful of is putting today's medicine on on the past because uh, we do love stories where someone's right and someone's wrong is a winner and a loser you know the the only it was all losers in philadelphia so many people died but rush kept an amazing chronicle of it i mean he wrote to his wife who was in his wife was um julia stockton you know her last name because her father has a rest stop on the new jersey turnpike but for those people who have memories beyond, be earlier than the New Jersey Turnpike, Richard Stockton was the most powerful lawyer in New Jersey. He also was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And his family gave the land and the original money that became, became Princeton. So Julia was home with her family during the yellow fever epidemic. And Rush was in Philadelphia. His house was turned into a hospital because Pennsylvania Hospital wouldn't take yellow fever patients. Because they, no one knew if it was contagious or not, and they didn't want to kill everybody in the hospital. So Rush's house became um, a hospital. People were sort of laying over every piece of furniture. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of yellow fever is, is, is this horrible black vomit. Like you turn yellow, your eyes turn yellow, and then you, you vomit this horrible black stuff. So 
you can only imagine what Russia's house was like, you know, what they were dumping into his garden in the back. It's not surprising that after yellow fever, his wife wanted to move immediately. He wrote letters almost every day to Julia, and we have them. And they, they form an amazing story. One of the things that's been very cool is that as soon as COVID started, I saw a doctor who was a former head of the American Medical Association who was reading my book. And he actually took a picture of a page of the book, which had one of the things that Rush had written to Julia, which he thought was inspiring. And he thought that other first responders should see this. So I thought that was really cool. Um, I actually posted the handwritten version of it because I knew where it was. And then I started posting other things that he had written because they really are quite inspirational and they are the first important doctor in America writing about how through his belief in medicine and his belief in religion, he got through this terrible epidemic, which almost took his life. I mean, he had yellow fever uh, too, as did many of his assistants. His sister who was in the house helping him died from it. Two of his assistants died from it. And Richard Allen the from the black clergy, the black clergy were invited to be part of the treatment one, because they were close to Rush, and two, for a very brief week or two at the beginning of it, there was an old medical report that African Americans were less likely to get the disease than white people. I don't think it's really true that the clergy helped because of that. I think the clergy would have helped either way. They believed that if they did that, maybe people wouldn't be as prejudiced against them. And that was really the way they wrote about why they were doing it. It's. I think it's become a mini scandal, the idea that this was because they weren't going to, they didn't think they were going to get it. They knew within, uh, within weeks that that wasn't true. They also knew that it wasn't something that Rush had studied. It came from a case report from South Carolina in the 1760s. It just was the only American case report. And it suggested, I mean, and it actually isn't, if you read it, it's not even a racist case report. I mean, because it basically says that the doctor was surprised that he didn't see black people getting it because every other disease that they had, black people got the same way as white people. So that that's an example of non-racist medicine from that time. But I think people have interpreted it in a different way. So Rush was in the middle of all this fighting with his colleagues because everyone thought they were right. And um, Alexander Hamilton, who Rush already didn't like, there was some question about whether Alexander Hamilton even had yellow fever, of course, because there's no way to prove it. But he claimed he had it and he was cured by the guy who did very little intervention. And then he wrote an article about that for the news, a letter to the newspaper. So that cure got to be known as the Federalist cure because he was a Federalist. And Rush's more aggressive cure became known as the Republican cure because Rush was more of a Democratic Republican, more tied to Jefferson. So the fact that the cures became politicized, if we want to know why politics has been so much a part of COVID and you think, oh, this is so new. It's not new at all. Whenever there isn't enough science, politics jumps in. That is at least the history of America. And you can see it all through yellow fever because what people are fighting about because they don't know what to do, you know, is you're doing it wrong or this is the wrong politics for this. It, but it really is the beginning of American public health in all kinds of good and bad ways. I mean, first of all, they were so frustrated that they couldn't get to the patients that they printed their treatments in the newspaper and encouraged people to treat themselves. This is the kind of thing, of course, today's doctors are going, oh, my God, you can't do it. But, you know, in an epidemic, what are you going to do? So Rush and the other doctors put their treatments in the newspaper. At this time, you didn't need a prescription to get, a, uh, to get drugs. And one of the main treatments was bloodletting, which was done by barbers. So you didn't need a surgeon to have bloodletting. These are not things you should be trying today. 
but I will point out that they weren't new during this time, and they didn't go away after Rush died. I mean, bloodletting was used until the 1890s. But just the, the, the feverish pace of everybody trying to figure out what's going on and how to save people, it, it really takes you, makes you understand what's going on today. And that, that until you have some control of the facts, until you have some control of the understanding of the disease and some kind of idea of the treatment, it's really hard. And of course, you know, they had vaccines back then. I mean, Rush was the one who convinced Washington to give the smallpox vaccine to the American army, probably the most important medical thing that happened in the Revolutionary War. So, it, but it didn't occur to them there was a vaccine for yellow fever. That wasn't one of the things they were considering. They were just using the treatments of the day. And what Rush did was when the treatments of the day didn't work, he doubled them. And when that didn't work, he doubled them again. You can say that's crazy, or you can say that's chemotherapy. Depends how you want to look at it. But I think that it's important to look at it as these were all doctors trying to save patients. They, and they, they did not have the science available to them that we did. And in most cases, what they did had no impact. But it was incredibly dramatic. We've always had Russia's letters, by the way. They've existed. Historians have had them uh, since at least the mid-1900s. We actually found Julia's letters back to him, which nobody had published, um, which were sitting in a folder at the American Philosophical Society since the 1980s, and no one had ever used them. So we were able to sort of show the dialogue between them. And, you know, it's really fascinating. At some points, you know, you have a wife writing, thinking she's never going to see her husband again. And then at another point, she's saying, like, could you send, like, our oldest son a letter? He's kind of misbehaving. He's been away from you for a bit of time. I think he needs, like, a little bit of a, you know, talking to. Uh, but don't tell him I told you to do it. Just make it seem like you just did it. So you really see, you know, both the, the incredible emergency that they're under and the incredible humanity of them. I mean, they, you know, they really were very publicly minded people, very serious people who um, – really believed in, in the country and really believed in public service. And you know, Benjamin Rush put his life on the line a lot. There's a reason that every medical society gives a Benjamin Rush award today for good works, for philanthropy, for uh, doing things above and beyond, because that's the legacy of Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush did an incredible amount of work for free and was involved in creating, you know, Pennsylvania Hospital was a volunteer hospital. People don't know that. It was only for poor people. And the doctors worked there for free. Most people got treated at home. Like if you had surgery and you had money, you, they cut off your arm at home. You didn't go to the hospital for that. They also created the first free outpatient clinic, the Philadelphia Dispensary. So they were very involved because, you know, it's interesting. He inherited from Franklin this idea that government wasn't going to do everything, that most of the things that society was going to need to function, people were going to have to have voluntary associations and give of themselves and their time and their money to have it done. So I think it's really funny when I read all these things, the people who are interpreting the past of the founders saying, oh, well, the founders wanted government to do this and government to do that. A lot of that is really not true. The, the, the founders, especially Rush, who inherited, in my opinion, the mantle of Franklin, they believe that private people should step up, be good citizens, and help take care of society's ills. They actually had one organization that you never hear about now called the Humane Society, not our Humane Society, which is for animals. The Humane Society at that time was for people who had jumped off bridges and were saved from drowning and brought back to life. No one ever said it was because they were trying to take their own lives. 
because suicide was scandalous and and British. When people in America started trying to take their own lives, like British people, people in America were all freaked out because they thought this was a British thing. But the Humane Society was who fished people out of the school kill, literally, and tried to bring them back to life. And so that's one of the many organizations, on top of political organizations that wrote papers, um, you know, some of the most famous things that Rush wrote about prison reform, about public school. You know, Rush wrote the first plan for public schools in the country. He started Dickinson College because he thought there should be colleges outside of the city. He also started what became Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, it was originally Franklin College, uh, which was a German-speaking college because he thought that German-speaking immigrants should be allowed to have education too. He thought education, once there was no king, education was the most important thing. That if we didn't have a much smarter population, men had to be able to read Women had to be able to read. African-Americans had to be able to read and learn. So he was involved in making sure there were schools for all those people. And so he had a very broad agenda and on top of the fact that he saw patients every day and he taught students every day. He was also like a really hardworking guy who, who slept about four hours a night and ate books and had you know massive correspondence and at the same time was – writing to, talking to, advising everybody who mattered in the story of our country. And we have to take a quick break. We will have more of our discussion about Dr. Benjamin Rush with Stephen Freed right after this. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One-on-One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And now let's continue our conversation with Stephen Freed, the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the visionary doctor who became a founding father. With regard to the, the epidemic, and you say none of the doctors knew what they were doing, they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. It was around, and I think you said, it was around 1900 that we figure out mosquitoes transmit yellow fever. But he was and correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong, was kind of on the right track with the idea that he thought conditions, sanitary conditions, were a part of it and that we you needed to clean things up? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is that even though they were wrong because they didn't know about mosquitoes, obviously the, some, some of the breeding of mosquitoes happened because of unsanitary conditions. And, in fact, Rush and others pushed for what became the first major public health action in America. So... Philadelphians don't know that there used to be a creek that ran off the Delaware River. It was sort of around where the Society Hill Towers are now. Like, so it was called Dock Creek. And Dock Creek was this a tidal creek that would go up and down with the tides. It's the stinkiest thing ever. And, I mean, if you want to have an idea of yellow fever, you should always just think about how much Philadelphia stunk. I mean, it's kind of stinky right now. It's, you know, 85 degrees in the summer. Well, imagine when it was 100 degrees in the summer, no air conditioning, no electricity for fans. And people would throw animal carcasses in this creek. They would throw human waste into this creek. And so they decided the reason you don't know there was a creek there is because they decided in 1794 that the first thing that they were going to do to address this was to fill in Dock Creek. So there would not be a tidal creek running through half of the city. I mean, more than half the city. Philadelphia only extended like to Ninth Street then. Yeah, the main city was sort of the river to Ninth, uh, Arch to Pine. So that's what we're talking about during this period. So they filled in Dock Creek 
as as a public health matter. But you know, it's funny they were both right and wrong. So at this time, they believed that they believed in the miasma theory, um, which is you know that that all illness is sort of in the air, in bad air, and if you can keep the bad air away from you, then you won't get sick. Now. There are some times when we think this is a ridiculous theory, and right now we're kind of living in miasma land, right? So we are acting pretty much as if, you know, bad things are in the air, and if we don't stop them from getting to us, we're going to get sick. So they would do things like burn gunpowder around themselves. They wore garlic around their neck. They would smoke cigars. Um, One of my favorites, they would take a piece of rope tied around their neck and dip the end of it in tar, so the smell of the tar would get everything away from them. So their ideas were both impractical and practical. They were both right and wrong, which I guess is all true of medical theories at all times. But there's nothing bad with the idea that public health was something that we should do something about and that sanitation is something we should do something about. And the city was definitely cleaner after they filled in Dock Creek. And it set the stage for the idea that there could be these big public health things that would really change the health of a city. Because if you look at the writings during that time, after yellow fever, people like Rush and especially uh, Thomas Jefferson were starting to wonder whether urban living was a mistake, whether cities were toxic. Now, we think of this as like a very 20th century kind of idea, you know, but they they were thinking about that from the very beginning. There was industry, there was, you know, the ports, there was all this pollution and all, you know, and they were saying maybe People shouldn't live in urban areas. And maybe that's that would be it would be safer if they didn't. So and you know, they had a lot of ideas. You know, what's what's kind of cool and I think people forget is that not only did you have Pan and you had emerging medical schools, Columbia, many of Russia's students then started the Columbia Medical School and other medical schools, but you also had at that time the American Philosophical Society, based right here in Philadelphia, which was sort of the major scientific and philosophical society where people would give papers and sort of throw out ideas. And, you know, Franklin had been the president of it for many, many years. Jefferson was the president of it when he was here in Philadelphia. And the Philosophical Society is also a place where people were putting out different ideas about what, what, and some of them would become science and some of them were just interesting ideas to throw against the wall. They weren't researched ideas so much. They were conjectured ideas. So, uh, but it was a very heady time. What people forget is part of the reason this story became such a big story in America is not only because so many people died in Philadelphia that year, but because there were yellow fever epidemics in Philadelphia, in New York, in Boston, in Baltimore for the next 10 years on and off. People lived in mortal fear of August. And they started looking at each other going, or do you look a little yellow? Because they, they also had no diagnostic tools. So there was an incredible fear in these port cities that yellow fever would come back, as it did. And keep in mind that the cities at that point were competing over who was going to be the leader. I mean, we we live in a world where New York is the biggest city, okay? But the Founding Fathers lived in a world where Philadelphia was the biggest city. New York was rising. Boston was powerful. All of them wanted to be the biggest port. And New York became that, but it became that a lot later than people think. And Philadelphia, in many ways, was really knocked down because of two things that happened in 1800. I mean, in 1800, the federal government left Philadelphia and set up in Washington, and the state government left Philadelphia and set up in Harrisburg. And there was an intermediate phase where they were somewhere else, but they ended up in Harrisburg, my hometown. 
So because of that, Philadelphia, which had been such a central place, was no longer a central place. And it did not have the same feeling of being the birthplace of history that we have now. People did not think of, you know, Independence Hall was supposed to be knocked down. It was, it was actually scheduled to be knocked down, and the Liberty Bell was scheduled to be melted. Um, it just wasn't done because of sloth. And, and then it was, it was actually, you know, almost 25 years before people started thinking, wow, America is cool. American history is cool. We should start paying attention to this. When Lafayette came back to America in 1825, Lafayette had come as a very young man to help George Washington from France. When Lafayette came to America and made his historic tour of the country that he had helped birth and saw Adams and Jefferson and came to Philadelphia, that's actually when they started calling the old state house that was supposed to be knocked down Independence Hall and saying, hey, it's like a cool thing. It's part of America's history. And Oh, this bell. That this bell rang when they signed this, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That's a cool thing, too. So that is really when people started taking the history of Philadelphia and Philadelphia is a central place in America's history seriously. But, but my theory is that it's part of our love-hate because we really never got over having everything and kind of losing it all so quickly. And so that's, that's a really tough thing. I think for Philadelphians, even if they don't know why they feel that way, there's something inside us because we were, it's like we were London and now we're not. And, and so the battle between Philadelphia and New York is bigger than just, you know, the turnpike battle. It's, you know, it's really hardwired into, in the nation's history. And my belief is that one of the ways you deal with it is have a better appreciation of Philadelphia's place. I mean, Philadelphians, and I was one of them, I think have a really bad understanding of American history and of Philadelphia's place in the whole thing, because they tend to focus on Benjamin Franklin, but Hey, guess what? Benjamin Franklin wasn't here most of the time. He was in France. He was in England. You know, you want to know somebody who's an eyewitness of things you want to care about. The other Benjamin, Benjamin Rush was here the whole time. He is your way of seeing what actually it was like in Philadelphia during all these periods. He was really the founding father who was here, and he very much took Franklin's place. But I do think that, you know, while we have lots of institutions that are here for tourists, you know, the question is how many of us really know the history of the city? How much of us, how many of us have embraced it as adults and tried to find what these people were like as grownups, not how we learned about them when we were in ninth grade? And also, a lot more has been learned about them. You know, when we were in ninth grade, it was just the guys, just a handful of white guys. You know, now the story of the founding of the country is husbands and wives, is white and African-American people. It's, you know, it's all of those stories because we've gotten better access to them and we can weave them all together and, and see a much more realistic um, and, you know, maybe less superheroish view of all this. But, uh, but, and I think it's cooler to see that real people did this rather than having the idea that these are some people who were so different than anybody else and these once in a lifetime characters they in once at many levels one they weren't and two at many levels they expected in each generation that people like them would be the next ones who would carry america that's the bold experiment that they created of a country that would keep trying to be a more perfect union i think that they expected this and you know it's interesting that one of the things benjamin rush wrote early on he was afraid that the founders that Washington and all those guys weren't going to come back to do the Constitution. 
So he, he, he wrote a famous thing. It's actually, there's a line from it on the wall at the Museum of the American Revolution saying, you know, the American war is over, but the revolution has just begun. Part of the reason he wrote that was because the fear that Washington, and especially Washington, had gotten like tired of all this and that he was not going to come back and be president. And he was afraid that the people who had written the Declaration of Independence were, did not have the strength to come back and write a constitution and govern. And so he wanted to make sure that they understood that they still had a big job to do. Because the other thing that people don't always pay attention to is the period after the war until the constitution got written – you're talking about like five or six years that's really mushy in history. And I think it was mushy at the time. And I think people didn't really know what the next steps were going to be. And so when you look at the fact that Benjamin Rush thought it was important to write in a, in a popular magazine, like a call to arms, that the people who had won the war needed to come back and, and make the peace and create a constitution and build the country, makes you understand that, that at every generation, even within that generation, people have to have a renewed spirit for making the American experiment work. And Rush writes so powerfully about that, that, you know, even a guy like me who, who's easily jaded, an easily jaded journalist, uh, you know, I have to say I find it patriotic and interesting. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 